Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule, four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the great British athlete, Roger Black. For 14 years, Roger represented Great Britain at the highest level in world athletics, both as an individual 400-metre runner and as a member of the 4x400-metre relay team winning 15 major championship medals, including European Commonwealth and World Championship gold medals and silver and bronze Olympic medals. Not bad, eh? His greatest achievement, he says, was winning the Olympic 400-metre silver medal in 1996 in Atlanta. But he is particularly admired for his triumphs over adversity, successfully overcoming several serious injuries and setbacks throughout his career. Since his retirement from athletics, he's worked as a motivational speaker, talking to people all around the world about the many similarities between high performance in the worlds of sport and business. He also has his own range of folding and static exercise equipment, which can be found in over 250,000 UK homes. But not mine, I'm sorry to say. Roger was awarded the MBE in 1992. So how did Roger Black get to be the man he is? Well, hopefully we'll find out, as he tells us the four things from his life he cherishes and the one thing he'd like to forget. All to be found in Roger Black's time capsule. Is it being recorded video as well, or is it just... No, uh... no, we don't use the video. Okay. Unless you die, and then, of course, we cash in on it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if I do it on voice memos... That's fantastic, yeah. And then I'll just record it like that. Let's go. Lovely. Roger, um, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest on my time capsule uh, because I, you know, talk to all sorts of comedians and uh, actors and, you know, quite famous people, but 
I just turn into a little boy when I have an athlete opposite me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm the same when I when I meet a musician. Uh, mm. So I think it's probably our sort of the talent that we wish we had or the, the you know, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have had a talent to do athletics, but, uh, you know, I, I'm from a very musical family mm. and I've lived around music all my life and I play myself and sing a bit myself. So I remember... When I, you know, been very lucky you know, over the years, you, you 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 bump into certain people at certain television shows, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if it's a fellow sports person, ah, yeah, fine, whatever. But I mean, <laughs> I've bumped into to Sting on two occasions, and I just went, just didn't know what to say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. the thing you do becomes normal. That's weird, isn't it, though? And that's absolutely true. So people often will say what you said to me. Um, I watched someone in an Olympic final with 100,000 people in the stadium. Mm. And I think, how do you do that? Yeah. And, of course, the answer to the question is, it's what I do. <laughs> it's what I live for. It's what I train for. It's what I prepare for. So my wife works in theatre. She's a theatre director. Mm. And I drive her nuts because whenever we go to, she runs a youth theatre, but whenever we go to the theatre or I see any of her productions, I, I always sit there and I always think and say the same thing, which is how do they remember their lines? <laughs> and she just says that is the last thing on their mind. Yeah. Because that's for an actor, that is just, that's what you do. Learning the lines is not... That's just part of being an actor, like mm. being an athlete. You know, running the race actually is almost sometimes the easy bit. It's the, it's the training up into it. it, it, it this, this, this. But yeah, it's it's when you watch people do something that you can't relate to, that you can't imagine doing for them, it's their normality, isn't it? It's completely yeah, they are in their they are in their world. They are doing what they were born to do, and they are expressing themselves. Whether it's a sports person, a musician, an artist, or whatever, it's just what they are. And what they so, practice yeah. again and yeah. again and again. Again and again, yeah. 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 So, I mean, do you remember what you think as you're going down that last 100 metres? Which depends. It depends on the race. It depends on, on how prepared you are. It depends. You know, every race is different, mm. totally depending on what state you're in. So I could tell you about races where I remember very little. Mm. And I can tell you about certain races where I remember every minute detail of them. I think in my case, the races I can remember, remember every minute detail of were the worst races. <laughs> the races that I ran best, they, they just happened and I almost they were over before I remember. So I, yeah. my greatest achievement was winning the Olympic silver medal in Atlanta in 1996 behind the great Michael Johnson. Mm. Annoying that he came along at that time, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, I mean annoying, yes, because I, I wasn't Olympic champion, but not annoying in the fact that if you're going to come second to anybody, make sure it's somebody the whole world know. And they never expected you to be. So, no. And I'm forever associated with him. Wow, wonderful. Um, and actually, one of my time capsule moments is, is that there is something from that moment that, that, oh, great. That, that, that is me and him. Because the relationship I have with him, although I don't see him much now at all, we are bonded for life because of that shared experience. Mm. But I, I remember the Olympic final. I do remember the Olympic final because I was, I was in great shape. And I remember, I remember walking to the stadium. I remember, I remember being... I, rem- I remember vividly being in my blocks just before the gun was about to go. Mm. I don't remember much of the race because it was over. It was almost automatic and it happened and that was it. But a year prior to that, I was injured. I was struggling. I was really struggling just, just to even make the, the line. And I got to the final of the world championships a year before that. And I remember every detail of that race because it was awful. Mm. I mean, I remember nothing. What, what am I doing here? Uh, I, I, you know, just completely not, not on top of my game. And uh, 
So for me, you know, the races I, I don't remember are the ones that went better because you're just in that zone and you're, yeah. you hand over to your subconscious. So you're not conscious of what you're doing. You're subconscious because you've rehearsed it so many times physically and mentally. You, you are confident. You know what you've got to do. The gun goes and you almost go into an, a, a, a trance like automatic in your head. Mm. You're physically doing it. Mm. Um, and it's over very quickly. So I, I actually don't remember that much of the Olympic final. I remember bits of it, but, but not as much detail as a race which didn't go well. And, of course, you've trained yourself to ignore the pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've trained and trained physically. But actually leading up to a, 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 an Olympics, it's, it's the mental training, which, is, which I only mastered towards the end of my career, the mental training side of it, because I had to because of injuries and setbacks. I, I visualised running the Olympic final. I mean, I'm not exaggerating hundreds of times mm. i mean any spare moment of my day for the three months leading up to the olympics i could do it now i could lie on the floor now close my eyes and i could t- i could i could see myself running that race i went to atlanta uh, a couple of months before for the rehearsal race for the stadium uh, i didn't need a race then i went there to, to to be in that stadium and to feel it and smell it and touch it mm. and i walked around every lane of that track on my own at six o'clock at night in atlanta just to feel it and engage it in my brain so that when I got to Atlanta two months later, I'd been there before. And uh, it's a weird thing, the brain, and it's a weird thing. You, you, the, the whole concept of visualisation, the whole concept of preparing mentally in sport in particular, and particularly a sport like mine, because, of course, I'm not reacting to anything. I've got nobody hitting a ball at me. I'm, mm. not, I'm not in a team of 11 people where we're part. You can pretty much, you know, I knew it was 400 metres. I knew pretty much who would be there. I didn't know what lane they'd be in, but I, I, I could see and smell the lane and, and all these things. So we talk about preparation. You know, mm. I've, I've never been better prepared in my life than I was for the Olympics in 96, physically and, and mentally. Yeah, but tough though, because you had had those years. I mean, yeah, fantastically yeah. successful as a young athlete. Yeah. And then suddenly you have three or four years where everything goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. so I came into the sport relatively late, 18. I, I messed up my A-levels. <laughs> Had a year, I was trying to read medicine, didn't get in to um, Bart's Hospital, mm. retook my maths exam. And, and, and as I was retaking my maths exam, gave it a go. I never, I knew I was good. I didn't know I was that good. Joined Southampton Athletics Club. And then just was surrounded by great athletes, Chris Akabusi, Todd Bennett. They'd just gone back from Los Angeles Olympics. And there's a lovely saying in, in our sport, which is, if you want to run fast, just go and run with fast people. <laughs> and I was lucky. The fastest people in the country lived half an hour down the road. And you know, chase them up a hill every night and eventually caught them. And so <laughs> my life changed because by the end of that year, I was European junior champion and British junior record holder. And, and a year later was Commonwealth and European champion mm. and British athlete of the year and British record holder. And then I broke my foot. Yeah. And it all changed from that, that moment onwards. It was never easy ever again. It was something that had been so easy and natural. It was just the next, well, what we, next 12 years were just, ups and downs and good years and bad years and, and a body that was slowly breaking. Mm. And, uh, and that's why I'm so grateful for, for what I did in 1996, because I could so easily not have been there and I could so easily not have meddled. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't wish injury on anybody, but there's no doubt about it. The injuries shaped me as a person and shaped me as an athlete. Absolutely. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. 
Well, oh, let's mm. see what else comes up then as we talk about the things you're going to choose to put into a time capsule. Yeah, okay. And I'm sure other areas of that will come up. I mean, yeah. I love the mention of those names as well because they were just great <laughs> runners. And that's my younger life as well, watching you. It was an era in British athletics that is now known as the golden era. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it because mm. what's different now, and you, and you, should, you, be, you shouldn't compare times or whatever, but but there are two very big differences to um, British athletics now and as it was in the 80s and the 90s. By the way, we all of, I mean, my great friend, Daley Thompson, it sounds like a name drop, but my great friend, Daley Thompson, said to me very early on, he said, you know, we owe everything to two people. Everything. And that's Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovet. Mm-hmm. Because in the mid-70s or early 80s, there was that period where they were swapping world records. Yeah. And then Steve Cram comes along and they stop the, the nine o'clock news to watch him break the world record in Oslo. <laughs> Athletics was front page, back page, Friday night, Wednesday night. You know, now you've got to search for it yeah. unless it's a major championship. So I came in on the back of that. And with the likes of Linford Christie, Colin Jackson, Steve, you know, Denise Lewis, Steve Backley, Jonathan Edwards, Sally Gunnell, Chris Akabusi, John Regis, mm. You know, the list just it just goes, yeah, it's just goes on and on. So what would happen for the British public is they would turn on the athletics on television and they wouldn't just see one or two people who might get a medal. Every single event, there was somebody with a British vest on fighting for medals. Mm. And that was an extraordinary time. And now we have some amazing athletes, but not for every event, no. you know. I mean, so so... You know, you had Tessa Sarnison, Fat and Whitbread in the Javelin. You mm. had, I mean, it was Daly Thompson, obviously, mm. you know, Cram, Co, Peter Elliott. I mean, he, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an extraordinary time. And I'm so lucky to have been part of that time. And do you think that was a whole generation being inspired by Ovet and Co? It, yeah, I do. I yeah. do. I think it was Daly Thompson, Steve Ovet. I think it, you can go back a bit, Brendan Foster. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It was a time where athletics was just, it's the power of the collective. Now sports are competing for talent. Mm. You know, why don't do athletics? Goodness sake. You, you know, do football, do rugby, do cricket. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, you know, these amateur sports that are no longer amateur. Have a career, a proper career. Don't do athletics, mm. blimey. You know, to make any living athletics, you have to win a major medal. Yes. Not just once, you have to do it again. So it was amazing. But I think we do owe it, so much of it to, to Seb and Steve. And, and I feel so grateful to have just happened to be part of that wave. Because mm. it was a wave and we, you, you could feel it. And, uh, yeah, in the nostalgia business now. We're doing the old nostalgia now. We were looking back to the good old days. Uh, Most people do. But, I mean, it's great to see young athletes, I mean, just recently watching watching the Worlds and watching the women 100-metre runners, and you sort of go, well, hang on a minute, there's a whole crowd of them. They all believe they can get there. They all believe they can do it. And they can, and they absolutely are. I mean, we have two world champions this year, uh, men's 1,500-metres and and the women's uh, heptathlon. In my event, the 400 metres, you know, since me, there has never been a global medalist. There now a, a, man, a man called Matthew Hutton-Smith, won mm-hmm. a silver in the World Championships, did won a bronze last year. Yeah. And he's been great because he respects the history of the event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's an interesting character, you know, an incredible physical talent. But it's taken him a while to, uh, what I would say, get it, get the event, understand the event. Mm-hmm. It's not just about talent. You have to understand the event and respect the event. It's a very tough event. He knows his history. 
he's phenomenal. I mean, he's just phenomenal. And, you know, I, I just hope he stays healthy and, and, and wins a medal of some sort, if not the big one in, in Paris next year, because he's an incredible, talented athlete mm. who's worked it out yeah. the hard way. He's worked it out. And you have to work it out. Yeah, yeah. When I look at it every time and go, a 100-meter runner, if they run around 10 seconds, they're very pleased yeah. with that. But you, to a large extent, would have run 400s each at just about 11 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And you tend to break it down into... Some people break it down into two phases, three phases, say four phases. Mm-hmm. I tended to break the event down into into three phases. But yeah, I mean, to be a world-class 400-meter runner now, you have to be knocking on the door of world-class at 100 meters, but you certainly have to be able to compete at 200 meters. Yes. It's a tough event. Mm-hmm. It's a tough event. And it's an event you can get so so horribly wrong because of, of, of lactic acid and if you go too quickly or you go too slowly. So it's just understanding the right way to run the race for you. Mm. And that was that is a, a journey and an education. I mean, when I started my career, I just ran out as hard as I could and held on. <laughs> and that was good enough to win the Europeans and the Commonwealth, and it was good enough to be the British record holder. It was never going to be good enough to win an Olympic medal. You know, it's just, you know, in our day, it was like four races in three days. It was never going to be good enough to do that. Mm. You, you just had to work out how to run the event properly and then do it. And that was the great challenge, of yeah. course, because understanding it is one thing and doing it in Zurich on a hot Wednesday night is one thing. But doing it in the Olympic final when you just know the stakes are so high, because <laughs> the problem with the Olympics is it's once every four years. Yeah. So it's a long time to wait if you get it wrong. So I got it wrong in Barcelona and I waited a very long time. And you're so... You're so aware of, if I get this right, brilliant. But if I get this wrong, four years is an eternity in in sport. And so it's not like in most sports where there's a championship every year. So, Mm. Or if you take golf or you take tennis, there are four majors every year. So if you mess up at Wimbledon, it's all right. You've got the US Open around the corner. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yes, I do. So it's a very different psychology. Yeah, it's almost like COVID for this recent generation. Did them a real favour. They suddenly bunged them all together, didn't they? Yeah, so in athletics, although we have a world championships every two years, which of course is amazing, every athlete in the world knows that you would choose the Olympics ahead of the world championships Mm -hmm. if you had to choose. And it's once every four years. (laughs) And I hope it always stays like that because it, it just elevates its importance. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm so lucky that, or pleased that, you know, I was healthy in 96. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, come on, I'm going to talk to you forever otherwise. Right, let's do my time capsule, yeah. Let's find out what the first thing is that you're going to put in there. So you've asked for four things to put in it, and the fifth thing, which is not a good one. No. Um, three of my four are photographs. Right. They are photographs of memories. So I was a, a kid who loved sport at school, but I went mm. to the local grammar school, which, you know, was quite academic which was a bit of a struggle for me, but it was very sporty. It was Portsmouth Grammar School and, and it was very traditional. So the, the, the sports were rugby and cricket. So I played rugby at Portsmouth Grammar School. I was on the right wing. I was fast. Great. I was always fast. And I tried to play cricket. I was never very good at cricket, but athletics was something that you didn't do. You did. It was a school sports once a year. There was an athletics club. You know, you didn't no. do athletics. And sport for me was social and as a kid from the age of 11 to 17, 18, I never joined an athletics club because I just didn't, it didn't appeal to me. Uh, I liked to play football when I wasn't at school. I played rugby at school. I knew I was fast. I'm not going to sit here and say it was obvious I was very quick, mm. but I had no reference to how quick I was because your reference is your school. And uh, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, what was the day where I actually thought, oh, blimey, <laughs> I might be a bit better than 
I was 17 years old and it was the school 100 metre final at the school sports day. So I was first year sixth form. So I was 17 years old, 16, 17 years old. Hmm. In the year above me was a, a guy who was a friend of mine called Justin Allen. And Justin was the fastest in his year. So he's a year older, which at school was a big deal. Mm. And then there was a guy who actually is, is you may, may or may not know of, there's a guy called Mike Wedderburn. Mike Wedderburn presents for Sky, Sky Sports. Right, yes. Mike Wedderburn went on to play rugby for Harlequins. And mm-hmm. Mike was an all-rounder sports person, captain of, and Mike was two years older than me, but he had to come back and retake his A-levels. So in this race, you had me as a 16-year-old, you had Justin Allen as 17, and you had Mike Wedderburn as an 18 going on 19-year-old, okay? Yeah. And it was the 100-metre race that everyone had and the whole school, like, betting on it. <laughs> Who's going to win this race, you know? And uh, <laughs> so I remember it. I won the race, but I didn't just win the race. I think I won it by five or six or seven clear metres. Wow. And the shock on Mike and Justin's faces, who are friends, the shock was palpable. And I think that was the moment where there's a difference between being really good at sport at school and then there's just that, there's just a different level. Mm-hmm. I run a business with Steve Backley and when we're giving our speech, it's what we call the tickets of the party. <laughs> Everyone at the Olympic Games was given what we call the tickets of the party. They were born with a degree of talent. They were lucky to be born that made them just that little bit better than most mm. people and it gave them a shot at the Olympics because not everyone can go to the Olympics. I think that was the day I probably realised I was given to the tickets of the party and the photo was in the Portsmouth Evening News And it's a photo of me crossing the line with Justin and Mike behind me. That photo for me, I think that was the moment where I realised that maybe I was a bit faster than I thought. Yeah. Because when it came to it, I was able to win the race significantly, not just, I didn't, I didn't, you know, buckle, I didn't get caught up, I just, just ran. And uh, so that's a good one. I think that's, I think that's That's a good good memory. That's a good memory for me. Just I can picture the photograph. I'm going to look it up. Those moments actually, when you realise that, that you can do something. And it doesn't have to be sport, yeah. it can be anything. You look around you and think to yourself, oh my word, I can do this much better than everybody else. And that carried on then for the following years. Then I joined Athletics uh, Sam's Athletics Club and then I'm running every night with Chris Akabusi and Todd Bennett who have just come back from Los Angeles Olympics and I've seen them on telly and they've got sponsored cars and they've got their sponsored athletes and I'm in my rugby kit turning up. You know. Yes. <laughs> but... And if Chris will always say this. Chris knew straight away. He's, he, he, that's why he took me under his wing. I mean, he just, mm. he just knew. He just knew. And that's why he changed events, by the way. He went from the 400 metres to the hurdles because he knew he would never, he knew he could never beat me. And he knew, and there was a, at the same time in Birmingham, a guy called Derek Redmond was running. Yeah. yeah. And Chris, Chris had the awareness to say, these guys are going to take the 400 metres in Britain to a level that the rest of us aren't going to go to. And all he wanted was to win an Olympic medal. And he, he knew he couldn't do it in the 400. It took him years to learn to hurdle. And Chris Akabusi is still the British record holder in the 400 metre hurdles. He was the European champion. And Chris Akabusi won a bronze medal in the Barcelona Olympic Games. It is an extraordinary achievement, what he did. And because of his laugh and his character, I mean, of course, I know a side to him that no one else will know, okay? But I witnessed him do that. And it it, it was a quite extraordinary transition. And he drove from Southampton to, to Leeds three days a week, because the only hurdling coach he knew, who was a British national hurdling coach, lived in Leeds. He thought nothing of it. He thought nothing of driving up to Leeds and back in a day just to do a bit a two-hour hurdling session and come home to his wife and kids. It's extraordinary. His commitment to his athletics was 
you know, amazing. And you see mm. this Joker, this laugh, this this massive character. Oh my goodness, goodness me! I see, I see the most methodical, serious, mm-hmm. committed athlete. The discipline of a soldier, I think. And well, actually, you're right. And it yeah. came from that. It came mm. from his him being a soldier. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yes. I just remember seeing those races when he'd switched and you'd almost laugh because he'd run so beautifully and then he'd get to the hurdle and he'd sort of stop and jump over it. Yeah. And he kept going and he kept going yeah. and he kept And he was never, he would say he was never a beautiful hurdler, but my God, he was a bloody good hurdler by the end of it. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Oh, how brilliant. Um, all right, mm. let's put that in as the first thing, that fantastic yeah. photograph, that moment that you realise. But I'm really looking forward to that in the world of acting. One day I'll, I'll have that moment. let's move on to number two so number two um it will be another athletics um photo and it and it's let's go to the end so that's the beginning the first photo is the moment of realization and then let's go to the next photo which is standing on the olympic rostrum with michael johnson and davis camoga who got a bronze in in atlanta Mm. and there's this um wonderful photo which i didn't know and was sent to me many years ago it was put up as one of the great sporting photo and it's the only photo in my house of me as an athlete there's no other and it's in the downstairs loo so there you Mm -hmm. go that puts it into content Mm -hmm. and it's the photo of michael johnson myself and davis camoga on the olympic rostrum it's the photo of michael johnson and there's a tear coming down his cheek and that's what makes it the photo photo it was and that photo for me was really People often ask, what does it feel like to stand on the Olympic rostrum? And of course, it's you've, you've, especially when you've achieved, you know, you, you feel you've done everything. You know, I, I, my silver medal was without doubt a great achievement. There's no, I felt mm. like I'd won. I went down, you know, there was no, oh, I could have won. I couldn't win. Um, you can see that on your face as you look at the footage of you getting up there. It's so clear. Yeah. And, and the word I used for me to describe, I had to say you know, one word that, uh, that describes how I felt. And the word I, I used is I felt complete. And the reason I felt complete was I knew that was it. I knew that as an athlete, I was complete. I knew that the moment I stepped off that rostrum, my life would never be the same again. And I knew me as a person, as an athlete, I would never want it or need it ever the same again. There was nothing left for me to do. I carried on for a couple of years. I was injured or whatever. But that feeling, any sports person that can have that emotion, especially towards the end, because of course, by definition, that has to be towards the end of your career. Because when you're young, you don't feel complete. Knowing that, it could easily never have happened. I could easily not have been there. I'd no right, you know, I easily could, could have not medaled. I'm definitely one of the potential medalists, but, you know, you still got to do it. Mm. But to have that feeling, knowing, you know, and if I'm honest, it's just like, I've done it. That's it. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> That's it. And, um, you know, I know Kelly Holmes felt like that when she won her two gold medals. I'm sure. Yeah. I know Chris, I know Chris Akabusi felt that's why he retired straight after the Barcelona Olympics. Mm. I'm so fortunate to have had that emotion because many athletes, spend most of their careers trying to get back to feel complete and they and they can't so mm. that for me those two photos side by side where it started and where it ended would be the two photos that i would mm. put in the time catchment it, it's sort of i mean i don't know if you want to talk about it but slightly ironically in a way you could have been on that podium in a gold medal position in the four by four well we should have been really you should have been yeah i think i think we all know that we won a silver medal in, in 1996. Mm. I should have been, you know, uh, I mean, it's still the British record holding team. It's still for the greatest, you know, greatest athletes that era, you, know, you and Thomas, Mark Richardson, myself and Jamie, Jamie Bolch, you know, mm. four athletes who had all broken 45 seconds and 
Ewan made the Olympic final with me. Um, I should have, could have, would have, you know, I think we all felt we have an opportunity to win and we, and we for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Um, the World Championships in 97, it's the same team. Mm. And we came second there again to the Americans, but we were retrospectively, I think that's the phrase, we were given the gold medal. We were elevated to world champions, I think uh, two years later, three years later. Right. Two of the Americans were found to have, have, have been taking drugs at the time. So, and that is, that's a weird one because it, it's so hollow. It feels so, it means more to other people than it does to us because it really doesn't mean much to us because what they took, it's not the medal. It's the moment on the rostrum. Mm. And if the four of us had won that race because the Americans had been banned prior to the race or whatever, we would have had that moment, the four of us as world champions. Now, I had that in 1991 with Derek Redmond, John Regis and Chris Akabusi. So it's probably a bit easier for me. But Mark, Ewan and Jamie never got that moment and deserved that moment, actually. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it sounds good on paper, two-time world champion. But it doesn't feel like I'm a two-time world champion. It feels like I won the relay once in 91 and was given a gold medal you know, 10 years later. After. Yeah, do they send it in the post? I actually haven't got mine, but that's uh. as much. That, it's a funny, I would definitely, it's a weird one. It's, it's a very strange thing. It wasn't celebrated. It wasn't acknowledged. It was a very strange thing. Um, I think they wanted to do it last year, believe it or not. But I was abroad. Mark Richard was abroad, so we couldn't do it. But uh, it's okay. You know, you move on. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well... Okay, but not really. Yeah, no. But um, what a great man to have been beaten by, though, Michael Johnson. Oh, absolutely. And just, just the complete athlete. I mean, he had it all. He had the talent. He had the ability. But he just... Um, Michael was incredibly serious as an athlete. You know, he didn't talk to many people. Much more relaxed in retirement. But mm. he was operating at a level that no one had ever operated at before. And to this day, you know, he, he still paid me the greatest compliment anyone, anyone ever paid to me. I mean, I, you know, you cross the line in the Olympic final. It was a big deal. And then you go and face the world's press. So we must have got a medals one then. So you face the world's press. And, and it's a big deal. There's a lot of world's press there because it's Michael Johnson. It's his mm. first gold medal of the Olympics where he's trying to win two. And you go to a little ante room. I walked into this ante room and there were three chairs there. One was for Michael, one was for me, and one was for Davis Camogo, who came third. And I'm the last person to walk into the room and Michael's sitting in the room and it's probably the first time he's been able to collect his thoughts for all of us, really. And I walk in and Michael has his sort of head in his hand and he's, and he's going, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. And I turned to him and said, well, Michael, what do you mean you can't believe it? Come on, you know, I've raced you five, six years. Yeah, no one's come close. And he, I remember exactly what he said to me. He said, Roger, I've raced you many, many times and I knew you were never going to give me this medal. <laughs> I thought, I thought, what? And that to me is the greatest compliment ever paid to me. Because what he said to me was, what he was saying to me is, I know I have to race you every time I put my foot on the track. He also knew, because four years previously in Barcelona, he got food poisoning. Okay, so he went in his favourite for the 200 metres and didn't even make the final. No. So he knew that anything can happen in this game. And he said, so a lot of variables. And he said, there was one thing I knew, I mean, you, were, you were always going to race me. And that to me was the measure of the man, because... What he was really saying there was he was never complacent. No. He never. And I could say the same, and I don't know him personally, but I think you can say the same about Usain Bolt. These people are that good because they're never complacent. They never assume they're going to win. No. You know, they should win and they're confident, 
but they have a respect for their opponents. If anyone had a right to be disrespectful to his opponents, it was Michael Johnson mm. in the 400 metres, because he was much better than all of us. I can, I can speak on behalf of most of the top 400 metre runners in the world at that time. He respected everyone. That's the mark of the man. And I think yes. we see that. We see that on the television sets now when he's you know, commentating. He was a, an extraordinary talent. But, but underneath that talent, there was also somebody who was respectful of his opponents. And I, and yes. I like that. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a hard event and you have to respect two things in the 400 metres. There are two things you have to respect. You have to respect your opponents and you have to respect the event. Mm-hmm. And he did both of those things. Yes. And he respects the effort that everybody puts into it. So he will be as respectful yeah. to a young British athlete who you know, makes the semi-final. Yeah, yeah, he will. He'll know the yeah. effort that's gone into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I think, I think that's, that's important. So. And let's face it, this is a man who took the pressure of wearing golden rubber Yes, shoes. he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, as I said, he was definitely confident. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, what a photograph to have, though, you standing on the Olympic rostrum. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic yeah. and well-deserved. So, from me, thank you very much. I enjoyed that enormously as well. No, pleasure. Okay, right, let's move on to number three. Okay, we're going to take a short break from talking to Roger now so we can play you some ads. It's an interruption you could avoid if you subscribe to Acast Plus. Then again, you may love the ads, for all I know. Anyway, here they are now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Sorry to interrupt the ads, but we have to complete the podcast by hearing the other things from his life that Roger Black would like in his time capsule. So here they are. So number three, I'll stick with the photos because I'm actually now forgetting what my number four was. And I know it's not a photo. Uh, so my number three is another photo. And it's, um, you know, if, if, if the whole point of the time capsule is, is, is to put away a memory that you can hold with you forever. Mm. My wife's family are big walkers and every year we go on a, a family holiday. It's sort of 24 of us now. But, um, and I, one of my great moments is they introduced me to the Lake District. I'd never, you know, I'd never been to the Lake District as a kid. 
And I certainly wasn't a walker. I'd never walked the peaks. Or whatever. Mm. And they, they're proper walkers, you know, so it's like, okay, we're going to do this one today and that one today. <laughs> I remember the first time I went, I'm like, my nieces and nephews were sort of, you know, seven, eight, nine. And they're walking up in trainers and I've got all the gear and I'm knackered. Absolutely. Yeah, Olympic athlete. Because, of course, fitness is specific, right? I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, my knees are killing me. But a real moment <laughs> for me was when we had, uh, we have twin boys who are now nearly 18. But the first time they did their first peak was um, walking up the old man at Coniston. Mm. And I think they were 10 years old and the whole family did it. And my two boys made it to the top of Old Man of Constant, age 10. That's not easy. Okay? No. And uh, there's a photo of me, my wife, Jules, and the two boys at the top of the Old Man of Constant. We've done it sub- subsequently. We did it last year. But that moment of, I was so proud of them for mm. doing that and sharing that moment that they'd actually conquered their first peak of the, of, of the Lake District. And that for me, I mean, of course, like any family nowadays, you have you know, thousands and thousands of photos on your phones and on your whatever. And I could pick many photos that I would want to revisit. But that one was a big one because they got to the top of the old man of Coniston. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a good one. It's, it's good. It's a lovely, yeah. lovely thing. Yeah. Um, do they show any sign of uh, being interested in anything that you were interested in? I mean, because you sort of tried to follow your father, didn't you, into medicine? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I did. I, I, and I did read medicine very briefly, but then athletics took over. So I sort of gave it up and gave athletics a go. But um, no, not really. I mean, they're, they're, they're not. I mean, one of them is really into sport, not to play it. He doesn't mm-hmm. play it, but he's really into football, like on a big level. So he uh, just just crazy about football. So Pompey or Southampton, I'm going to ask. Southampton, Southampton, Southampton. Right. And, he, and poor boy, it's killing him. How did you go to that grammar school and end up supporting Southampton? Because uh, my, my father wasn't really interested in sport. I was I supported Liverpool as a ten year old, and I was crazy about football, and uh, but supported Liverpool because Kevin Keegan was my hero. Mm. And um, my father, someone joined his uh, practice, his a GP from Norfolk or somewhere, moved down, and he was really into football. And he said, "Look, if you want, I'll take Roger to see a football match." And he could have gone right or he could have gone left on the M27. <laughs> and he happened to go left. And he took me to see Southampton play, don't remember, Fulham, I think. I was 10 years old. So I stood in the terraces and it was the Dell back then. It was scary. I'd sit mm. in the terraces and watched my first live football match, Southampton. It was 1976. And six weeks later, Southampton won the FA Cup. <laughs> you don't go back from that. No. I mean, that's singularly one of the greatest moments of my life, seeing Bobby Stokes scoring the winner in the 82nd or third minute for Southampton. I then, the following year, went to Portsmouth Grammar School where everyone supported Portsmouth. <laughs> but as I say, you, you don't, you can't come back from that as a 10-year-old. No. You can't come back from that. So, yeah, I went to school in Portsmouth, supported Southampton, and now you know why I ran fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Brilliant. So, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever they do, I'm sure your your sons will. Yeah. I mean, there's something joyous about making that sort of effort and getting somewhere, uh, particularly as yeah. a group of people, as a family. I love to walk with my grandchildren, and I think we sort of discovered it during COVID, and uh, we suddenly discovered that they could walk enormous distances. Yeah. If in fact there was a reason for it, if there were people around them. Mm. But you asked me about my kids. So I, my daughter is 23. She does run. Right. So she runs. So she she took athletics really late and she did it, joined the local athletics club and she loves athletics. And my other son really loves watching athletics, actually. So there's an athletic influence on them. 
Mm. But of course, you know, I wasn't a runner when they were all, you know, I fully retired, obviously, by the time they came along. <laughs> and uh, so they're, they're as influenced by the theatre. My wife, my children have been as much influenced, if not more, by, by theatre than they mm. have by, by sport, because I don't work in sport, whereas their mum works in theatre. So. Yeah. Yeah, I just did sport and talk about it and known for it. So. <laughs> and as they yeah. say, endlessly. Yeah. Here he goes again. Here he goes again. Same old stories. And will do forever as long as people are happy to ask me. So. <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Well, let's put that lovely picture of you at the top of the old the man. The old man constantly. I've forgotten the fourth. Was this morning I was driving thinking, what's the f-? And I've, I'm, I'm, now as we're doing this, I'm thinking, what was the fourth memory I put in? Well, I'll let you think. I was talking to my wife this morning and, and I said, oh, I'll do three photos. What is the fourth? It wasn't a photo. It was a, it was a memory. I don't know what it was. <laughs> Always make a list. <laughs> I know what it was. Ah. It's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> I got it. I got it. It's a great one. Okay. So, well, so what is it? <laughs> so my fourth memory, and if a photo had been taken of this, it would be a great photo. So in retirement... As you know, yeah, what do you do? What do you do? You know, you've, you've, you've stopped doing the one thing you're good at. You know, you've got a bit of this, bit of that. And, and part, one of the things you do is, you, if you're lucky enough, you get asked to do reality television shows. Mm. So in 2005, I was invited to go on the second series of Strictly Come Dancing. So I was invited on the first one. And I said, nah, come on, that's not going <laughs> to work. And as in most of these shows, they do the first series, but it's the second series when they commissioned the second series where it starts to really go. So the second mm. series was a big deal. And it was a time in my life where my confidence was pretty low. I'd stopped working for the BBC, which I didn't, you know, didn't see coming. So I wasn't in a great place. But I got this invite, would you do Strictly Come Dancing? Oh, for God's sake. And then I found out who else was on the show. And I thought, okay, it was a hell of a lineup. It's a hell of a lineup. It yeah. was, It was, you know, most people on it, you would say... Back then, okay, I know most people. So you've mm. got the two sports people were myself and Denise Lewis. Wonderful. Esther Ranson. Yeah. Uh, Carol Vorderman. <laughs> Julian Clary. <laughs> Alid Jones. Uh, celebrity gardener, Dermot Gavin. Celebrity motor journalist, Quentin Wilson, who still has the lowest score ever. It was absolutely appalling, <laughs> but great fun. Um, Jill Halfpenny, who was very famous in EastEnders, who went on to win it. Yeah, yeah. Just, just lovely. And this really come dancing. It was an absolute joy. I have to tell you, it was it was a joy. I, I couldn't take it that seriously because I was very busy making my living as a speaker around the world, whatever. But back then, they didn't mind. You know, just thanks for being on it. Now <laughs> you have to go to an interview and, and get, get on it. Everyone wants to be on it. But this yeah. is back in 2005. So we do Strictly. And a big part of Strictly is getting to Blackpool. And I got to Blackpool, which was brilliant. Because fortunately for me, in those days, there wasn't, I don't know if you watched Strictly Come Dancing, but they have a dance-off now. Okay, and and back when I did it, they didn't have a dance-off. So no. it was just a public vote and whatever, so it would be a lot harder now. So I got to Blackpool, which was a big deal, um, and it, they make a big deal about it. But the thing about Blackpool, the, the, the tower ballroom of Blackpool, is the dressing rooms are tiny. <laughs> so this whole, this whole production crew come from TV Centre in, in London, and you've got to take everyone, contestants and everyone, to the Blackpool ballroom. And, you know, in London, you've got your own dressing room. It's huge. It's all brilliant. So Blackpool, I'm sharing a dressing room with Julian Clary and Ali Jones. Oh, brilliant. So we do the show. We all get through just, you know, we're all relieved to get through. 
And we go back to our dressing room and my memory, because I think this sums up, you get to, I've done a lot of TV shows, you know, Celebrity MasterChef, which was a great memory as well. You get to do things that you couldn't buy. You get to have memories that, that you just couldn't create. That, it's a moment in time you couldn't create. The memory is this. We've done the show. We're off air. We're in our kit. We go straight back to the dressing room. We're sitting down in the sort of circle, the three of us, leaning forward, all actually physically but emotionally exhausted. It was quite an exhausting thing. And we're sweating and whatever, and we're leaning over in silence. And we've got a bottle of red wine. I think. I'm pretty sure we did. <laughs> Cigarettes were involved. I don't know by who, but well, just a little bit. And I remember looking up and looking at Julian and Alec and just going, this is a moment. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, this is a bizarre moment. You know, you got the, I didn't say this, but you, in fact, you got Olympian, a choir boy and a camp comedian or, you know, put together to be on this dancing show that's taking off. And we're sitting here, the three of us in this dressing room. And those are the moments that, you know, I feel so blessed because you, you know, I'm doing that because I used to run fast. Okay. Mm. Okay. I then, I subsequently did the, got to the final of Celebrity MasterChef and they got to do an extraordinary thing. So I would like to put these two together, actually, if I can. Mm. And I wish, actually, there was a photo taken of this. I haven't got it. The final of Celebrity MasterChef. Was on a, they recorded it on a Sunday. We went to the Gavroche, the restaurant, uh, Michel Roux's restaurant. Yeah. And myself and Matt Dawson, the rugby player, and Hardy Sincoli, the comedian, mm. got to the Gavroche. It's closed on a Sunday. To work in the kitchen with Angela Hart- Hartner, who's now a very famous chef, but was sous chef at, uh, at the Gavroche, and Michel Roux. And <laughs> I cooked the starter. Matt did the main, whatever. And we were judged. And we did our food and there was a table set up for four people who were going to judge our food. And it was all four of the Roos. So it was Michel Roux, his <laughs> cousin and his uncle and his father. Wow. And Michel Roux said to me, this is the first time the four of us sat around a table and had lunch together for, I cannot tell you what it would be, to get the four of us in the same room to do it. And we cooked for them at the Gavroche. Wow. And that was just, that was just such a, such a moment. You know, my yeah. brother's a big foodie and he just couldn't get his head around that, that no. you had cook, cooked in the Gavroche, where, you know, Gordon Ramsay had learnt, where Marco Pierre White learnt. Mm. But more importantly, you cooked your food and presented it to, to the Rue dynasty. And they were all very kind, by the way. They were very kind. And uh, those are moments that when I'm sort of looking back over my life that are moments, really special moments, actually. Strictly in MasterChef. I love the fact that there comes a point where you sort of, you look back and you go, well, this is it's sort of mad. I would never have done anything like this in my life no. just because I could run fast. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. It's, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, good. Really- it's good, it's good. <laughs> and that's how I take it, really. If I get invited on things, I usually say yes, because I think, you know, you never know, you know, why not? You know, it's, it's, it no, really absolutely. is. And you get to meet all these different people from different walks of life, um, whether it's an actor or a musician, whatever. And what's interesting is, is that, of course, you know, I've got a couple of friends who are, who are actors and I'm fascinated by what they do because I'm not an actor. Mm. I've got you know, one of my very best friends is a musician. And it's like when we started this conversation, it's just it's what I do, you know, <laughs> but for me. And then, and of course, that, the actors love meeting the sports person because yeah. they, cause they, they go, yeah, yeah. So there's, I feel there's a real, there's a real connection between theatre and sport, by the way, which I didn't know as a kid. I know through because of my wife, because it's the same game. It's teamwork. It's collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's performance. 
and practice. It's practice, but then it's but it's also you know you can talk a good race, mm-hmm. but can you actually step up and deliver when it matters? And it's the same in the theatre. You know, you could all look good in rehearsal, but can you actually have you got that that magic to be that character and whatever? And and so the the correlations are all there. You know, no one stands on the Olympic rostrum alone. There is a team behind them, and I think mm-hmm. it's the same for any any actor. And the fragility, and the fragility, and the and the. The perception of confidence from the public, where deep down, actually, you know, there isn't. You know, there's a nervousness. <laughs> I, I, I never. I was always nervous before I ran. Mm. You know, and I'm sure all great actors are. Yeah. There's a nervousness. You'd be mad not yeah. to be. There are ways of dealing with it. There are ways yeah. of talking yeah. to yourself and saying nobody's going to die here. It, well, exactly. Yeah. It's only a race. <laughs> it's just a play. It's all right. And, and if okay. it goes wrong, you think back to all the times when it has gone wrong. And you're still there. You're still fine. So, yeah, that's all right. It is also the correlation that I see is that repetition, Mm. the determination, having done it and maybe done it and gone, that's exactly what I want to do. That's it. Right, let me do it again. Mm. Always looking for ways. Can I slightly improve that? Can I make it better? That's a very sportsman-like thing, I think. But it's a huge thing in sport. You know, you, you, it's it's coming back to when I saw Michael Johnson. It's the it's the lack of complacency. It's always looking for little ways to improve, mm. rather than than thinking you've nailed it. And my business partner is a guy called Steve Backley, who was the world record holder in the javelin. Yeah. Now, world athlete of the year in 1990, world record holder unbeaten, and then he started to go backwards, and uh, had a disappointing Olympics in '92, and then got back. And he says the difference for the athlete he got back to than the athlete prior to breaking the world record was, he learned that to be the best in the world and stay the best in the world, you have to live every day and think and breathe as if you're the second best in the world. <laughs> and there's something in that. So what it is saying is you you are always learning. You are always looking to improve. You're mm-hmm. not resting on your laurels. And I think the great sports people and ultimately great sport people are not the ones who had the one-off. They're the ones that had the, you know, it's a great sports people. It's the longevity. It's not just that. It's why Usain Bolt has to be the greatest athlete of all time because of the mm-hmm. longevity and the consistency of, 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 of it. Yes. Um, not just that one or two great races. Um, and, and I think it, it must be the same in, 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 in theatre. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, it is those people who, who consistently do it and do it in all sorts of different things. And can change and adapt. And, Absolutely. And yeah, 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 yeah. And grow, continue to grow. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Of course, you yeah. know, my theatre world has led me to the point where I was rehearsing a play while my entire family went to Berlin to watch the World Athletics and saw Usain Bolt <laughs> break all the world <laughs> records going. And, Brilliant. But, and I love this play that I did, but yeah. I also hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking of things that we dislike, we have to put one thing in there. Yeah, and and I and I'm I, I, I'm assuming a lot of people come to this in the same way and, and find this hard. Okay, mm. now maybe I'm wrong. And the reason I find this incredibly hard is that I wouldn't be sitting here today, and I would never have become an athlete if I hadn't messed up my mass A level exam. Mm-hmm. I was devastated the day I got my results, my A levels. And I was reject. I didn't get a place at Bart's Hospital. I was devastated, and it changed my life forever. Because if that day hadn't happened, I would never have run. Because what it meant was I had to retake, and so I took had to take a year off. I couldn't get into. I had to retake it, which I did, and I got the right grade and then went on to university. But that's when I started. I joined an athletics club, and and the rest is history. Mm. It's very hard for someone like me to find a moment in my life that I want to erase or, or not remember. Because I mean, and you know, I've. And I've we all have many, you know, my life hasn't been straightforward. 
but it's very hard to raise anything because I'm sitting here today. Mm. And I have friends who aren't sitting here today who are no longer with us. And so you have to take, so for me, getting a bit deep, I, I go, well, there is nothing I have, the things I wish hadn't happened, but I can't erase them because I'm only sitting here today as a product of all my life experiences. Yes. So in that point, I would rather not have to do this because it goes against my, and I'm not, I'm not an optimist. People think I'm, this is a, I'm just a realist. And so I realize that that's that, but I will, I will, and I will, I will cop out now. Okay? okay. And I will go with, um, with, and it will be athletics related. Mm-hmm. Because I make most of my, a lot of my living telling my story and giving motivational speeches. Mm. And yeah, I have 45 minutes to an hour to fill it all in and add value and make people laugh, make them cry, make them motivate and whatever. And I skip over my injuries as if I'm going to literally skip over five years in, in five seconds. Okay. Mm. And I always, my brain always goes, God, you're erasing that memory because I will never. I will never want to forget how it felt. And it's not when I broke my foot, by the way. In 1993, I got glandular fever. Epstein, right. I picked up the Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. And I will never forget sitting at home watching, back then, a guy called David Grindley went on to break the world record, watching athletes who I had raced a year earlier and beaten and sitting watching that and feeling I had no connection with that at all. Yeah, I would never say, people say, how did you get over your injuries and your setbacks? And I go, yeah, I had the dream, I had the vision. And I did, and I never mm-hmm. let go. Of, I knew that I was never going to give up because you're a long time retired. But what I do know is I had no confidence. I had no confidence. I I, I, I was a shell of, of the person I'd been because I felt awful uh, physically. You know, It wasn't like when you break a foot, you you've, you physically, it will hopefully heal. Yeah. When you have something like glandular fever, you look fine. And around that, that year, people would look at me because I would do a bit of training and I, but I couldn't, you know, I was, t- I couldn't be me. And people would, I knew it. And people were questioning me, were questioning that I'd lost my bottle. I yeah. was fine. He looks fine because you can't see glandular fever. Okay. And I lost all my confidence in myself. And what I actually did, funny enough, is I, 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 I had to escape. So I went to Canberra in, in Australia with my good friend, a guy called John Ridgen, who had a, a Tornikin, who's now the chief executive of World Athletics, mm. uh, so works alongside Sebastian Coe, and he's best man at our wedding. I met my wife through John, and um, we both went to Canberra and lived with no money and got got back. He got his Achilles back, and I I did get back slowly. But I suppose I would a part of me would like to raise that emotion of sitting at home watching David Grinley and other athletes do things, and I felt no connection with it at all. I thought I I thought I had no rec- connection that I could do that. No, I was so low. But I don't want to forget it because, you see, the truth is, without that, I don't think I would have won my Olympic medal. I really don't. I, I, I just think it was part of the plan. And the problem I have, Michael, is I'm one of the lucky ones because I stood on the Olympic rostrum age 30 and I felt complete. So I can't give you something I want to erase from my memory or forget about because I know that it ended up okay in the end. And so... It's a really hard one to do. And that's not because I'm an eternal optimist and life is great. I, I had never been lower than that moment, ever. Mm. I, I was a shell of a, the person I was and then became. And I remember vividly feeling, it's over. I can't, I can't do it. People think you're injured, but you go, yeah, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do it. I didn't feel it. I felt, that nah, it's gone. So there you go. All right. For you then, 
that's going into the time capsule. And if you've ever yeah. opened it, you're brave enough to open it and look inside. Yeah. It's actually Southampton being relegated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they went down last season. It's really great fun in our household, I tell you. I can imagine. But um, now I completely understand that. I completely accept that as well. And it's it's great to see it that way. I think mm. because for many people, those tests, those trials, are the point at which they say, "Well, what's the point?" Yeah, but I, I could never stop as an athlete because I knew I'd been given the ticket to the party. Because mm. I knew I could do things if I was healthy that other people couldn't do. That sounds incredibly arrogant, but I will say it. And I'm not talking about winning. I'm talking about just being able to run 45 seconds on minimal training. Yeah, that isn't normal. I was also aware that you're a long time retired in this game. It's not like your game where you can be doing it in some shape or form until the day you die. Mm -hmm. You're a long time retired in athletics. So don't go too early. Don't look back going, if only I just hung on in there. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I I didn't. And um, I don't have that emotion, so I'm very lucky. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it was wonderful watching your career and it's uh, it's really lovely to talk to you as well now, Roger. Thank you. So I wish you all the happiness Pleasure. and uh, everything for the future. It's a joy to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Roger Black. Thank you for listening. Wasn't it exciting? Of course, there's nothing very exciting that happens from here on in, so you could move on to another episode or just get on with your life. Or you could listen to me talk about, well, A, how pleasant it would be if you rated or reviewed the show, B, how lovely it is when people subscribe to this podcast so they get all new episodes in their podcast app the day they come out, C, the fact that I and my time capsule are on social media where we have no trouble interacting with people, I promise, who want to chat or ask us questions about the pod. So feel free to follow us. D, the lovely theme tune available on Spotify and written and performed by Pastor P's Music. E, Acast Plus, which I've mentioned before, where you can get this podcast ad-free for a very small monthly subscription that we greatly appreciate. Then there's F, the name of our production company, Cast Off Productions. G, the thanks owing to our producer, John Fenton-Stevens. And finally, H, a joke to finish off, such as, I've got a very good accountant. In fact, he's so good, he's got a loophole named after him. But he's somewhat shy and retiring. He's shy half a million quid, that's why he's retiring. So here we go. Please do rate... Oh, hang on a minute. Everyone stop listening. No, I won't bother then. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, 
Movement that inspires. Call 800-3334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.